0: Hello, listeners. My name is Rhonda Morris, and I'm the vice president and chief human resources officer at Chevron. Chevron is proud to sponsor the Lead from the Heart
1: podcast. I am here with my colleague, Kim McHugh, who is the vice president of our Rockies business unit. Kim will share a short story about a leader whose simple and kind act had a long-lasting influence on her career and how she leads others.
2: Early in my career, I was working as a drilling engineer in Lafayette, Louisiana. I'd spent a few years working in the Gulf of Mexico, developing important skills on a drilling rig, and was now working in the office planning wells. The operation I was supporting was having problems, and I was meeting with my supervisor and other engineers to present my thoughts on a plan. Before I could finish presenting the information, my supervisor interrupted and made a decision on what we should do. There were facts he did not have that made his solution suboptimal. I tried to explain, but he shut me off and said I did not have the experience to understand. It was quite deflating and frustrating. We ended up with more problems due to his solution. As we got together again to problem solve, he interrupted the meeting. I will never forget him looking at me and saying, Kim, I owe you an apology. I did not take the time to listen and I own this outcome. It's hard to describe how his statement impacted me. I had never observed someone in a power position, apologize, especially in a full room. I gained so much respect for him for having the strength to do that. He showed me the power of, I am sorry, taking responsibility and being vulnerable. I think of him as one of the best supervisors I have had because of that. I've used vulnerability in my own leadership journey and to be honest as a parent. Letting people know you make mistakes and recognize them, helps to build the psychological safety needed to work effectively. There is so much power in an apology. And now, on to the show.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. With this episode, our series begins its sixth year, and I want to mark the occasion by giving our newer listeners a quick grounding in why our podcasts exist. Long story short, when the first edition of my book, Lead from the Heart, came out, the collective consciousness at the time influenced a lot of people in business to be instinctively dismissive, they associated the word heart in the title with leadership weakness, and automatically assumed its author, me, had to be a nut or surely someone who didn't understand business and the importance of driving performance. So goal number one in launching the show was to have people hear my voice and thinking and ideally to have them come to realize that I wasn't crazy after all and that my leadership thesis was actually rather sound, albeit revolutionary. Goal number two with the show was to find guests whose own work could in some meaningful way add validation or support for the lead from the heart thesis. And the truly remarkable thing is since we started the show, we ended up finding them at some of the most prestigious universities. Top academics and researchers from Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, Yale, many other top schools around the world have been prolific in producing recent work, which confirms we need more caring leaders in our workplaces and that teams and organizations outperform when employees feel their human needs are being met and honored. We've also had CEOs from companies like Best Buy, Pixar, Campbell Soup, Medtronic, Join us to tell us that leading with and from the heart proved to be a competitive difference to their organizations. And after over 120 episodes, we've grown our audience to 175 countries across the globe. The reason we keep going with our series is because we feel we're really just getting started, just now building the audience we dreamed of and which will help us influence the first major change to workplace leadership in over a century. And we are so grateful that you're here as a listener and find our content helpful, insightful, and even compelling at times. Our promise is to introduce you to more brilliant and world-class thinkers in our next year of shows and hope you'll introduce the podcast to your friends and colleagues whom you think might also benefit. And now I'm thrilled to introduce you to today's guest. This is actually the second time Herminia Ibarra has joined us. Her first episode a few years ago focused on her deep dive study into how Satya Nadella transformed Microsoft after becoming its CEO. It happens to be the second most downloaded episode in our entire podcast history. Today, she's here to discuss her provocative global bestseller, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. When it comes to cultivating strong leadership skills, our common assumption is that it's best to think and then act. We study management books and the like, and then go apply the lessons to the leadership of our teams. But Herminia's conclusion is that we only increase our self-knowledge in the process of acting as a leader. We try something new, and then observe the results, how it feels to us, how others around us react, and then we reflect upon it all and internalize what our experience taught us. Herminia tosses conventional wisdom aside, this idea that managers should increase their self-awareness first, and asserts that managers learn the most by experimenting, taking actions, trying new things. New experiences not only change how we think, they change who we become. In other words, who we are as a leader is not the starting point on our development journey, but rather the outcome of learning about ourselves. Now, just before I welcome her, you should know that Herminia is ranked among the top management thinkers in the world by Thinkers50. She's a member of the World Economic Forum's Expert Network, a judge for the Financial Times Business Book of the Year Award, and a fellow of the British Academy. Before becoming a professor of organizational behavior at the London Business School, she was on the faculty at Harvard's Business School. We are so honored to have you back, and welcome to the podcast, Herminia.
1: Great to be here, Mark. Thank you very much.
0: Well, it's lovely to have you back a second time. I very rarely do that, but I was introduced to the second edition of your book, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader, and I actually had not read it and realized that you were publishing a second edition of it. So I gave it a read and I realized like, this is a very excellent book and we need to talk about this. So welcome back. Let's get to it. The essential premise of the book is that the only way to become a leader, this is my understanding, by the way, is to act like one. In other words, we make decisions, we take actions, we then evaluate how they all play out, how they succeed, how they influence other people, and then we decide what can we learn from these outcomes. So you stress that much leadership training today overemphasizes the importance of self-reflection and coming to know oneself and becoming clear on one's values and what they stand for. So the big question that I had, and I read this on an airplane and I was like, huh, this is the question I want to ask her is, can't and shouldn't leaders learn valuable lessons from both?
1: Of course, Of course, I'm never going to say self-reflection is not important, Mark. However, however, I really have come to believe that action takes precedence because we've got to think about what are the issues that people are, are grappling with as they try to step up to have a bigger leadership impact. And a lot of the common things are... I spend a lot of time doing the kind of the urgent day-to-day operational I don't have enough time to take a more strategic approach to my work. I should delegate a bit more. I'm not paying enough attention to my network. All these kinds of things, they don't hinge on self-reflection. They really hinge on figuring out how to do it in a way that is feasible for you. You know, delegation is a great example. You can reflect all you want about what's getting in your way, but ultimately you don't do it because you know, you believe that the work is better when you do it yourself or you don't come to trust. The only way you're going to change that mindset that's really driving your behavior is to go against the grain to figure out some ways of doing it, maybe a little bit more experimentally, and then let your own experience change your mind. Because we know what the right answer is. We know what we're supposed to do. We know theoretically what's helpful or what's more effective, but we don't do it because it's not habitual. And the only way you change habitual behavior is by acting differently.
0: So... Very concise. Thank you. Bill George has been on the podcast. His book is called True North. And the whole premise is that in order to lead other people, you really need to fundamentally understand yourself first. And the reason I'm drilling down on this is because I absolutely believe that. I think that people tend to underestimate the influence of their previous experiences and their upbringings and all those kinds of things. And if they have a better understanding of themselves, they may have they may not just make better decisions tied to their self-understanding, but they may become more empathetic and even compassionate with other people simply because they understand the impacts of the experiences that they had. So I'm a big believer in that exercise. I'm also a very big believer that, you know, we learn from our failures. We learn from the decisions that didn't work well from us. We learn from experimentation. We learn from doing. So I'm on board with you. I just want to know Where does the self-reflection component come into play? Like, where are you advising people to go in deep that way?
1: Yeah. And so what I encourage people to do is to get some new experiences and then reflect on them. Because most of the time, we're trying to do things we haven't done before, and we don't really have it in our past experience. And we kind of get paralyzed in the thought process in analysis and reflection, and we don't actually move to action. And so what I'm trying to do is to get people to try some things out, to get some new experiences, to connect to some new people, and then to reflect on what they're learning in the here and now, as opposed to always kind of going deep into the past.
0: Okay. So... But you still do find it valuable. I don't mean to persist there. I just want to understand. You do still believe that it's essential to do this work.
1: I think it's essential to do this work. But I think that we misunderstand what it actually means to self-reflect. I mean, I think we learn about who we are. By the choices that we make, by the actions that we take, we enact who we are habitually by what we do day in and day out. And so oftentimes there's a big gap between our sense of who we think we are and we actually do on a day-to-day. So I get people to take a very close look at what it is that they do and to work on changing that. And oftentimes that actually helps them then start to think about Okay, what did I learn here? What does it say about who I am? What does it say about who I want to be? One of the biggest things that blocks people is a kind of a rigid sense of authenticity. Oh, I've reflected on who I am. That's not me. I can't do that. It kind of goes against the grain of any kind of growth mindset. It keeps them from experimenting with other ways of having A more positive impact on people. It keeps them focused on themselves as opposed to empathetically trying to figure out how to connect to others. And so I think there's a balance here. And I do believe that we have gone too far in the direction of self-reflection when the way we learn to behave differently is by behaving differently.
0: As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about a boss that I had very early in my career. I happened to gain some experience while I was in college as an undergrad that proved to be invaluable to the company that I went to work for first. And so what they ended up doing was promoting me like quickly, bam, bam, bam. And now I'm in this role where like I'm feeling probably a good percentage of me is over my head in the role that they're giving me, but relative to the other people around me, there was nobody else that was even close to being capable. I couldn't see that. All I could see was whenever I made a mistake, I felt really bad about it. Like I would try different things and experiment, but it was big stage. And so where I'm going with this is that, I'm wondering what your advice is to managers of young managers, because what happened in the experience was my boss, who was like one of the most senior people in the organization, He didn't come and bring me in and give me a spanking, if you will. He understood that in order to do the kinds of things that I was needing to do, that there were going to be lessons learned and that we're not going to punish the guy for trying because he's moving us in the direction that we're trying to go to. I will forever be grateful to him because I was very hard on myself. Mm. So that was enough for me to basically leverage everything you're talking about. Try something. It didn't work. It may have caused some problems. Learn from that. Do better next time. But also to have a supportive boss who didn't punish me every time.
1: That's what psychological safety is, by the way, that you're able to make mistakes with good intent, learn from them, iterate, and be supported for that as opposed to not trying things. And, you know, what I see more often is people are so afraid to make a mistake. They're so afraid to deviate from what they've always done. And they start to define their authentic self in those terms. You know, what I know how to do, what is completely inside my comfort zone. And that's not a context for learning. It's not a context for learning. And when you've not done it before, I mean, I'm not talking about deep-seated values. Obviously, you need to reflect on those. But when you've not done these things before, the best thing to do is faster cycle learning by trying things out. Now, if you can have some shortcuts because you've gotten some good coaching from a manager, fantastic. But most of the time, we don't because they're not there they're in another geography they're busy they don't know how to coach and so what we've got left is the kind of learning that you can only do by doing it's not the only learning but when it comes to how to lead at a higher level when it comes to how to motivate people when it comes to how to stretch your leadership style those are not things you can do reflectively you have to do them in
0: practice i completely agree with you i want to ask you are we afraid to make mistakes as managers because We fear being punished or we fear being embarrassed. What's the reason and what's the solution?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of all of that. But one of the things that I've come to conclude through this research is that it's not even a fear. The biggest impediment is it's kind of a classic what got you here won't get you there kind of Marshall story. Mm -hmm. We become successful with certain set of behaviors, there's things that we do and we kind of get anchored on them. And after a while, they're not so much tools, but they're your identity. They're who you are and deviating from that and moving away from motivating or leading or persuading in that way starts to feel like a threat to your sense of identity. And that's oftentimes why people don't do it. The kind of the knee jerk reaction is it's not me, but it's not me it has to be distinguished from i haven't done it before i haven't learned it yet it's not my habitual behavior
0: well in your book you strongly encourage leaders to be courageous in taking on new projects and assignments and experiments and challenges and to reiterate the premise of the book that that's how you learn that's how you grow So I've seen this motivation in the best leaders that I've ever worked with, but I've also seen the opposite in a lot of people at very senior levels, thinking that they don't want to take any risks because they don't want to lose their very senior roles. Is that something that you've seen as well? And how do you convince a manager to adopt a willingness to, at any level, to struggle and fail and live in the discomfort of not knowing everything?
1: So we can't put it all on the person. You know, there are contexts that are going to encourage learning and there are contexts that are going to encourage playing it safe. And, you know, we are in a context that's kind of tough right now. We're going through mass layoffs, for example. That's not a context in which people are going to say, hey, let's experiment and play here. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: No, let's be conservative because we feel a bit under threat. And so organizations have to understand that they can't ask for learning behavior And then kind of slap it down every time there is a mistake. So it's not just about the individual. But we do get very wedded to our secret sauce. And we get very wedded to what we already do well. It feels good. We're in the zone. We're in mastery. And so... Part of what I talk about is how can you kind of get involved in some other things? How can you make your job not just a place where you deliver flawlessly on what you already know how to do? How can you make your job also be a platform for learning new things? Can you take some slivers of your time to get on a project, to get on something that's going to stretch your learning, that's going to stretch your skill set? I'm not saying it kind of experiment with the bottom line on something that you absolutely have to deliver on. I'm just saying, do not spend 100% of your time doing what you already do very, very well. And people think there's risk in doing something different, and they never think about the risk in continuing to do the same thing. And there's a lot of risk in that too.
0: That is a very, very powerful insight. You're absolutely right. Thank you for punctuating it that way because I don't have to ask my follow-up question. You, You just nailed it. So thank you. So back to your book, you're a huge advocate for developing a diverse social network and not making the mistake of just developing relationships with people in their own organization, which you emphasize is what the vast majority of us do. So tell us why, I think it's actually more challenging with people working remotely, by the way, but tell us why it's so important to be cultivating such a broad three different kinds of relationships I think you're stressing in your book.
1: Yeah, so the research is very clear on this. We need networks that are broad, that kind of reach out far and beyond, that connect us to different ideas and different kinds of people. If we are to be innovative, if we are to get things done, if we are to be able to bring the outside in, to see what's going on, to collaborate effectively for all of those things, we need networks that are broad and diverse. So that's one thing. Second thing, as human beings, Our natural tendency is not to do that. As human beings, our natural tendency is to hang out with people just like us. It's more comfortable. There's decades of research that shows that it's called the similarity attraction paradigm. We hang out with people who are just like us. We like being with them. And if that's not possible, we get to know and we get to like people who are easy to get to know and get to like because they're in the office next door. And so our networks are what I call narcissistic and lazy. They're either just like us or they're kind of (laughs) based. And the research shows this. And I've spent 30 years surveying my executives and that shows up in their networks. They're insular. They're too homogeneous. We have all kinds of networks that are either within your own unit, within your own specialty, not crossing diversity lines, all kinds of things. So our human nature is to build networks that are not the networks that we need in order to be innovative. We're not good at it. We don't want to be, we want relationships to happen naturally and spontaneously. We don't want to have to work at it. And so as a result, we tend not to have the networks that we need to be able to have that broad perspective and be able to reach out and connect different kinds of ideas and different kinds of people. And it takes awareness. It takes realizing that that is, as particular as you get more senior, that that's your job to be able to bring that perspective, to be able to connect different areas. And by the way, that's also how we get jobs. And that's also how we advance our careers. With insular networks, we don't get very far. And so I spent a good bit of time in the book talking about what makes for an effective network and what are the things that we need to do Which are going out of our way in order to build those networks.
0: What are the principal goals of having an expanded network? Like, what's the whole purpose? Is it just to protect ourselves if we need a job? Is it to gain insight into other industries? Like, what's the motivation for building this?
1: yeah, so in in every seminar I run, I start by asking people how important is it to have a good network for your leadership effectiveness? And everybody gives it the top rate rating. Mm. And they say it's for a lot of things. It's because you need a network to get anything done because you need a network to keep you informed because you need to have people to collaborate with, to cooperate, to get buy-in to figure out what's happening. So already, just in terms of getting things done, you need a network. Beyond that, if you've got a seed of an idea, The idea is never fully developed. How do you develop it? You talk to people, you get their perspective, you find out what other groups did, you get an expert to pull in who's going to give you some input into it. Ideas grow and develop by that kind of cross-fertilization. Networks are hugely important in innovation processes. And then, you know, in terms of getting a job, we get jobs through our networks. That's how we get leads, we get referrals, we get introductions, we get ideas. I've done a lot of work on how people change careers. Most people who want to change careers don't know what they want to change into and so you also need networks to see what other people have done to be inspired to consider possibilities to find ways of not pigeonholing yourself and to not let yourself get pigeonholed so there's quite a bit that we do through our networks most of the work we do is relational
0: so how do we do it how do i cultivate a better and deeper broader relationship base than what i have today if I'm ambitious and I want to do it what's your best advice
1: two ways activities and relationships the first is activities what are projects I'm involved in what do I do extracurricularly do I have interest groups that I participate in do I use social media does that make sense does it not make sense do I speak at events do I stay connected to my alumni networks you know there's all kind of a long list of activities that help us rub elbows with people who are not in our day to day and it's important to have some of those So that's one. Sometimes you can be more strategic. I'm going to take on some projects within my organization, outside my unit, because I want to build some connections. But one basket of things you can do is pay attention to what activities you engage in and make sure those activities get you, as I say, out of the house, which means outside your immediate day-to-day operational work. The other way is thinking specifically about relationships. Who do I need to know? Where am I going? What am I trying to achieve? Who can help me? Who can guide me? Who can give me exposure? And literally finding ways to either get to know or deepen your relationship with those people, ask for introductions, reach out, do your homework, try to find ways of connecting. But it's actually quite simple. It's really more a matter of actually doing it.
0: Is it any more difficult than a hybrid world? Absolutely.
1: There's been a couple pieces of research, uh, starting with a bit of work that Microsoft did on their own organization. Remote work has damaged our networks. First COVID managed lockdown damaged our networks and remote work has made it difficult to build it back up. Because remember, we're narcissistic and lazy. (laughs) The lazy principle depends on kind of bumping into people. So if we're not bumping into people in the elevator, in the office, at work, it's harder. You know, you can have that kind of informal conversation. Hey, by the way, what did you think? But if you have to schedule a Zoom, it's a different order of magnitude altogether. You know, I see it in my own workplace it's hard to figure out what people think, where they stand on sensitive issues. You're not getting soundings. You're, doing, you're not bumping into people in the hallway and saying, what do you think about that? So it's a lot harder. You have to be more intentional and you have to make sure you're carving out time for that. And the informal part, I'm sorry to say that it's stilted. You can make room before or after a meeting to have quote unquote informal interaction, but it's not the same.
0: Well, do you, maybe you personally, are you much more intentional about having those kinds of conversations, making sure you have connections with people when you know everybody's in the office and when you're obviously in the office yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course I do. You know, on days I'm in the office, for example, I'll make it a priority to go have lunch in the lunchroom. So I bump into people, whereas I might have preferred to have sit at my desk and you know and have my sandwich Mm -hmm. or (laughs) one of the things I do is I'm at the end of one very long 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 corridor and so when I come in sometimes I go in through the other side and so I walk all the way down and across so I can bump into people and kind of get a pulse on what's going on that's
0: great I mean, you're acting like a leader, but uh, (laughs) I like that. That's great. You mentioned Daniel Goldman, who I'm pleased to say is going to be a guest in January and his study on the classic leadership styles. He says leaders rank coaching as their least favorite style, saying that they simply don't have time for the slow and tedious work of teaching people and helping them grow. And like my hair just stood up when I read that. So noting that managing people today essentially demands that leaders become great coaches, what's your advice for overcoming what's apparently a built-in resistance to doing it?
1: Yeah, okay, but let me point out that this was an old study. So this is a while back. You know, Right now, I think we've kind of come a long ways towards recognizing the role of the leader as a coach. It doesn't mean we're good at it, but we recognize it more so. So I think we've made progress since then. That said, this is another, another great example where we know the right answer. We just don't do it. We know we should coach more, but we don't do it because we're busy. And it feels to people, when people are not skilled at something, it feels to them that it takes forever. And so what they imagine, and they've been in these kind of painful conversations where you think, I should be coaching. So let me ask some of these open-ended questions. They ask a question, and then the person says something that they didn't expect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're not saying what they want them to say. They're not reading their mind. They're saying something else. And so then you try another question. They still don't say what you want them to say. And you're getting more frustrated. And so you start asking leading questions and the other person gets more annoyed. (laughs) And it's kind of miserable because you don't know how to do it. And you kind of give up and you say, well, I just don't have the time for this. It's because you're not skilled. As you get more skilled at it, you can do it more quickly. You can have coaching moments on the spur of the moment. You value it. You see what it brings. When you see the value in it, you invest in developing the skill further. And that's a great example of act like a leader, think like
0: a leader. Yeah, you just took the words out of my mouth, actually.
1: (laughs) You're not a good coach. You're not, right? There's no point reflecting on your childhood or your values, right? That's not going to get Yeah,
0: Yeah, I'm with you. But you also say in the book that even though we don't do it, we somehow tell ourselves we're great at it. So how do you overcome that hurdle?
1: Yeah. And so that comes from a lot of misconception. You know, people have a view of good coaching, people who are not skilled in it. That comes from, like, say, little league sports. They think coaching is, I'm the expert. I know how to do it. So I'm going to tell you how to hold the bat so you can whack it out of the field. And coaching is not that. Maybe that's mentoring. But coaching is helping people learn for themselves, helping them learn to learn helping them achieve their potential. And what that means is you're trying to learn, what are they trying to accomplish? What have they tried? What are their options? It's a much more kind of Socratic way of helping them to develop than simply saying, here's what I ought to do. And, you know, it's a great example of what Satya Nadella called shifting from being know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. As a know it all you say, I've seen it before, here's what you do, or here's what I would have done. In a coaching mode, you're saying, hmm, maybe I haven't seen it all. Maybe I've got something to learn. Maybe that person knows something I don't know. What did you see? What did you try? What happened? What could we try now? And so it's a very different approach, but people who are not skilled at it think it takes a very long time. They also confuse coaching with giving feedback, with directing people, sometimes you, you know, you don't coach on everything, you don't necessarily coach on getting to the KPIs, you say, here are the KPIs. And so it's a skill set that needs to be learned like any other. And when you don't know it, you think
0: it takes a long time. I think that is the common resistance to it, right? And even the way you described it, It's like you have to start off the assumption that, okay, I have enough humility that I'm not just going to solve the problem for them or tell them how I've done it in the past or, oh, I've seen this and this is what's going to happen. So instead, you call the Socratic method here, which is implies asking a lot of questions, which also implies this is going to be tedious. This is going to take a lot of time. I don't have a lot of patience for this because I pretty much already know the answer. So like how do you overcome that? How does a manager overcome that?
1: Well, a manager doesn't exist in a vacuum. Some of the people that I have seen overcome that effectively were coached by others who were skilled at it, and so they saw the positive impact on them, and then that motivated them to say, take a class or take a workshop and try it out. So it's a whole process, but without kind of your eyes being open to its potential, it's really hard to pick it up and run with it.
0: So just to pin this down, though, you're really just saying that the best way to become a good coach is to coach. Yes. And are you okay with people saying, so if I'm coaching you and I said, look, Herminia, this is something that I really feel is essential to my job and to helping you. But we may have some bumps in the road because I'm still learning to become effective at it. Is there any reason to say that to somebody? Yeah, why not? Is it useful to say it?
1: It's useful to say it because it shows vulnerability. It shows a learning mindset. It also explains to them why you're doing stuff that's different than what you normally do. (laughs) And it enlists them. It creates public commitment. You're saying, I'm working on this. Yeah you know, I've seen people do that. I've seen people do that. They say I'm I'm working on this skill set. I'm not always going to get it right. Sometimes I'm going to revert back to form and you know let me know because I'm working on it.
0: Yeah, I've done enough coaching with people to find that there are times where the guidance or advice that you're offering them is something that they're not ready for. Like they're just, that's just not where they are. So you're not meeting them where they are. Yeah. But if you persist in, you know, if I'm just going to try to nudge you a little bit longer. So you you realize that and you say, okay, I'm not going to push this any longer. But if I have already set the preface that, hey, there will be some bumps along the road. When I see that I may have pushed too hard and I see you bristle, it gives me an opportunity to say, remember at the beginning when I said, you know, I'm not going to be a master at this at the beginning, this interaction around me suggesting you do this, I sense that you're not prepared or want to do that right now. And that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. To me, it just sort of creates this wonderful circle. I completely agree. All right. So I want to change gears and something that I really loved about your book. And I want you to explain, you say that successfully leading change effectively boils down to a three-component formula. The idea, like what is it that we're going to be changing, the process, how are we going to do it, and from a leadership standpoint or a management standpoint, you. And this is what I loved about what you said. You said that the you part always trumps the idea and is the filter through which people evaluate the process. So, tell us about the kind of you that people best respond to.
1: Yeah. And that's really simple. It's a you that walks the talk, it's the you that is genuine. Because so many times people are trying to affect a change. This is particularly true where we're talking about cultural transformation. We're moving towards more of a learning organization. We're trying to establish more psychological safety, whatever it is. And then The person does not act in kind. The person does not respond. And so you're trying to take an idea and put it into practice. But if you don't practice it yourself, if you don't role model it, if you don't convey to people why it's real to you, why you believe what you believe, it will feel to them like a bunch of bullshit management jargon Mm -hmm. or generic stuff. And so you've got to convey, why is this real? Why is this meaningful? Why should you do this? And a lot of it is in your own behavior.
0: You're triggering an experience that I had where the organization made a decision, the organization that I worked with several years ago in my career, and they decided that they were going to teach people how to micromanage their employees. And including their managers, starting at the very top of the organization. So there was a methodology. The premise of the methodology was, I can make you work harder than you will ever make yourself work. So starting from there, there was Monday morning commitments on what are you going to do this week Wednesday check ins to see where Herminia is on her commitments. And then Friday is you have to disclose to everybody whether you kept your commitments. And if you didn't, then there was a public hanging. And it was extremely painful. And I could see where this was going. I understood the whole premise of it. And I fundamentally disagreed with it all. But we were asked the person who created all this was very clever in saying, In order for this to work, we need the senior managers to get on board and say, this is the greatest thing that's ever going to happen to us. And it made me just sick inside to think that I'm going to have to be the advocate for this. So when there are times where you're not on board with the change, what's your advice? I know that's a tricky question here. but It is a tricky question. I wouldn't
1: get on board with the change. You know, I would be trying to figure out what is the fundamental thing that we're trying to achieve here. So this is a great example of something that's all process. Where's the goal? What is it that we're trying to do? Is there another way of getting to it? You know, and maybe the goal is something that you don't ascribe to in which point you really do have to think about dusting off your CV. <laughs> but this is all process for what? What is the actual objective?
0: I actually figured that out. I don't know that I figured the calculus out the way you just described it, but I actually did that process. So the the expectation was, if I'm going to micromanage thousands of people in this organization, and this is a bank, this is a financial institution, and so people in the branch offices were all responsible for achieving certain productivity goals. You can imagine all the different products that they were being asked to sell. And I think the organization believed that they weren't getting there fast enough, that they weren't achieving them on a consistent basis. So let's micromanage the hell out of people and we'll get there. Yeah. So what I told my team was, I'm not going through any of this nonsense as long as we meet our goals. Exactly. So let's focus on achieving what we need to achieve and you guys get a pass. And they were very grateful. And so we never had a problem meeting our goals. So very interesting that you would identify it that way. It's
1: a great example. There was no idea there. And so therefore, the process didn't mean anything to people. And certainly, if you had gone through the motions without believing in it, it would have shown and nothing about it would have worked. What you did was step up to lead, which is what is it actually that we're trying to accomplish? And then how do we get there in a way that's real? Exactly. That is authentic leadership.
0: I just really didn't want my people to go through that pain. It's just so unnecessary. But thank you. Because there are times when we're just not completely convinced that the change is essential and, and yet you have to lead people there. So that's why I wanted to go there with you. It sounded awful. <laughs> it, it was awful. It lasted for three years. And by the way, the person who created this, just so you know how pernicious this was, he's a medical doctor. I won't say anymore. But he created this methodology and sold it to pretty much every major bank in America. At a period of time, every bank was essentially being managed this way. Can you imagine? Just astonishing. He got rich off the exploitation of a lot of people. Tell us about chameleons, people who are naturally able and willing to adapt the demands of a situation without feeling like a fake Your book mentions former U.S. President Barack Obama as having this skill. And just to be fair to the other side, I remember reading that Ronald Reagan had this thing called the 101 percent rule. So his rule was he would find the one percent that he had in common with someone and he would devote 100 percent of his attention to that so that he didn't have to get into confrontations. But I found this very interesting from a leadership perspective differentiation standpoint and I wanted to explore it with you
1: yeah so the thing with chameleons it's a psychological concept the name of it is high low self-monitoring and it has to do with the what's your natural inclination when you walk into a situation do you say to yourself what do I need to do and who do I need to be to be effective here or do you walk into the situation and you say, how can I be most myself here? You know, Let me just be, you know, I'm not going to adapt to the situation. The chameleons are the true situational leaders. They have more repertory, but it's an identity dynamic for a chameleon their identity is a kind of like an inner core of abstract values and everything else, you know, are you going to be more outgoing, less outgoing? Are you going to be more fact-based or are you going to be more emotional in your persuasion? All those things are tools that are going to be harnessed to achieve a particular goal. You've got flexibility, you've got adaptiveness. You can talk to people just like you and you can talk to the 1% you have nothing in common with. For people who are, I call them true to selfers, It's harder to have that range. Why? Because your sense of identity is not just in abstract values. Everything, how you dress, how you walk, how you talk, how you communicate is an expression of identity and not just a tool. So kind of going against the grain, violating that feels like not being yourself. You have more authenticity dilemmas when you're more of this true to self verb. In leadership, there's one thing that we have known through the ages and that it's it's situational. How you influence, how you motivate is going to depend on what you have in front of you and what we teach people, what we've always taught people is stretch your repertory, get more breath, more junior people only know how to do it one way. As we get more senior, as we get more experience, we're able to, to communicate in different ways, to influence in different ways, on the basis of what is the need of the person in front of you. And so I think there's a lot to be said for getting more breath. I talk about, can you be a more authentic chameleon? (laughs) So how do you combine both the benefits of adaptability with the
0: benefits of being true to yourself? I can tell you, I have a lot of limitations and innumerable faults. But as I was reading this, I realized I'm actually very good at this. Mm. And I remember years ago, it being described as requisite variety. So going back to what you were saying earlier, if people like people like themselves, then people have a very easy time interacting with people like themselves. But the world is not filled with people like us. So this is like you have to get there, right? And you don't have to be inauthentic to do this. That's what I loved about this is that The chameleon is not a manipulation, it's who they are. are. And I really do truly believe that this is an essential, like if you really want to differentiate yourself as a leader, you have to find ways to find common ground and to build trust and rapport with people that are very much unlike you. Mm -hmm. So I think this idea just really stood out and you actually articulated it really, really well. So thank you. Thank you. Next on my list, Herminia, according to psychologist Jerome Bruner. I love this too. A message is 20 times more likely to be remembered accurately and longer when it's conveyed through a well-constructed story than when it's based on facts and figures. So this amused me. I won't tell you why, but it amused me from a personal experience that I had to read this. But what kinds of stories should we learn to tell?
1: Stories about who am I? Stories about who are we? Stories about what's important? Stories about where we're going. This is a big part of the you in the equation we talked about, the idea plus a process plus you. How do you convey who you are? Well, you tell some stories about what's important to you, about what have been formative experiences that have shaped your thinking. And that makes your message be more real because you've given the evidence. Why do you believe that? Well, I believe it because I've had these experiences that I'm sharing with you now. And it sticks with people. It sticks with people. One of the examples that really stood out in my mind was back to Satya Nadella. He was trying to get the organization To be more learners, to have more of a growth mindset, to choose learning something new, even though they may not have that capacity innately, even though they didn't know yet how to do it. And one of the qualities he thought was important was empathy. So, there are two stories he was always telling about himself, about how he screwed up because he lacked empathy, but how situations in life, the birth of his son with cerebral palsy, the early days at Microsoft where he failed an interview question simply because he wasn't connecting in a human way. And his message is okay, I didn't have that. You might not have it. But if you reflect on life's lessons, If you are aware, you come to see and you come to develop these things. They become important to you. And and in kind of implied, it's like, if I was able to develop this, basically, I was a geek engineer, just like all of you. You might think you're not a people person. You don't have empathy. Bullshit. You can develop it. You can develop it. Just reflect on what life has taught you. And use that to develop your sense of empathy. And I think that message really stuck with people because he made himself vulnerable. He showed a side of who he was. And he basically said, I'm not perfect either. I didn't have that.
0: The aspect of this, and of course, I'm very familiar because we had this conversation a few years ago about him. But the thing that stood out to me was this idea that when you tell stories versus sharing data and slides and numbers and all that people can then go home and tell that story to other people yeah and when you tell a story to somebody that you heard you're reinforcing what you heard and so it right it's like relearning it relearning it so it's the gift that keeps on giving
1: yeah it's the oral tradition a story gets retold it gets retold it gets passed down and as you tell it you internalize it
0: exactly (laughs) we'll move on from there Research shows that when we get negative feedback, we are apt to just ignore the information. I did not know that. We dismiss it as irrelevant. We blame undesired outcomes on others. What is with us? Or we simply deny its validity, unless we get it from someone that we believe has our best interests at heart. So I love that language, of course, but how do we actually accomplish that?
1: Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of research that shows that negative feedback Rarely ever achieves the intended effect because it puts people on the defensive. You know, people react, well, you know, he's just biased against me. She doesn't like me. They only saw me on my bad day. Mm. Uh, (laughs) All that kind of stuff. You know, we make excuses for it. And so it's only going to be received well from somebody who is trying to convey that they have your best interest at heart. That's trying to convey it from a learning point of view. And it's also only going to be well-received if you're in a context in which it is normal and regular and frequent, and people get skill on how to do it, and they get taught how difficult it is. You know, one of my favorite things about negative feedback is that even giving it, let alone getting it, produces in your brain the equivalent of, you know, the fight or flight when you got a big mammoth coming at you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just such a stress reaction, And so it doesn't put us into learning mode. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of things, giving it to people in doses that they can take, making it actionable, giving it at the right time, giving it when you have a good relationship, asking if the person wants it. There's all kinds of things, but most of the time, negative feedback backfires because it makes people defensive.
0: But we still have to give it sometimes, right? So
1: sometimes we have to give it. Yeah.
0: There's just times where you have to give it. And so, in the spirit of having their best interests at heart, let's say I blow something really badly. You said something to me, you said this is really important to me, and I glossed over it and it didn't happen. And now you're really upset with me. So I know I've done something bad, but you really give it to me. Like it's painful. Mm-hmm. And you need to pay more attention. You need to be more disciplined. I couldn't have been more clear. And so I'm like, okay, I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it. But as I leave your office or wherever we're having this conversation, and I'm reflecting on the feedback and how hard you hammered me, am I more likely to just accept that I blew it and not blame you or blame others and really reflect on it if I knew that you had routinely called out the things that I'm actually doing well?
1: Yeah, of course, of course. That's part of what makes me feel that you're not biased.
0: Okay, so final question for you. I know it's late in London right now. So what's something truly astonishing that you learned from your MBA students? One of the things that I picked up from your book is that you're constantly asking them where they are. I get the sense that you're staying in contact with them, that you're polling them a lot, you're getting a lot of data. And so if I'm right, And I think some of this has to do with reviewing their 360s and seeing whether they're growing and so forth. Is there anything that you've learned from all of these very bright people who are coming to your school to get an MBA or executive education that would really enhance the leadership ability of the people listening to this podcast if they knew it?
1: <laughs> it's a kind of a tough question. It's
0: a broad question. I'm giving you an open, I'm giving you the floor basically.
1: Yeah. So, so what I have learned is that we all go through different periods and transitions in our careers. And so sometimes everything's on the up. And sometimes things get hard, we get to turning points, where, you know, it's not working, I'm no longer happy here, I can't stand my boss. (laughs) And those are the moments in which having community and connections make a big difference. Because in all of this leadership scholarship, we tend to talk about leaders as individuals, as kind of like soul players. And that's not what we are. We're part of communities. We're part of groups. We're part of networks. And there's a real power in community. Oftentimes, the strongest thing for my students is they get together in a group And they get together in a class or they're debriefing a 360 and they realize they're not alone. Other people are going through exactly the same thing and they can talk it through and they can brainstorm solutions or at least feel less alone, get support for that. And there's just real power in that. And I I think that that's one of the big lessons that I have gotten out of um, years and years with my students is helping them understand the power of that and how much more confident and brave and resilient they can be as part of a group and as part of a network and to not try to go at it alone, but really take support and take courage in those sets of connections. So that's where I would end the conversation
0: today. I'm not going to let you end it. I have a follow-up question. (laughs) Should managers, should leaders be facilitating this, fostering this, encouraging this so that that connection actually occurs, that people do feel part of a tribe within their teams?
1: Sometimes your tribe is not part of your team. I think you have to find your own. And sometimes the most powerful connections are not the immediate ones. They're people who don't know you as well or who don't see your day-to-day. And so, therefore, don't have expectations, don't pigeonhole you, and and can imagine the future possibilities that you see for
0: yourself. Okay. You're terrific and very, very insightful. It's an excellent book. Congratulations on your second edition. I enjoyed it thoroughly and I enjoyed our conversation thoroughly. So on behalf of my entire audience, Herminia, thank you so very much.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much.
0: As we close, I want to again thank the employees and managers of Chevron, who work in over 50 countries around the world, and specifically to its chief human resources officer, Rhonda Morris, for choosing our show to sponsor. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic, Take the A Train, written by Billy Strayhorn in 1941, and is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. And one more thank you, as always, goes to my team that brings you this podcast, Mr. Ken Boynton, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, Anna Boynton, and my producer, Eric Oz. I'll leave you now with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now.